What's up, everybody? Welcome to The View from Jamestown Podcast Edition. This is episode two out of three of our little three-part mini-series here with Diaz Trade Law. Uh, this afternoon, we have Jen Diaz, who is the board-certified international attorney and president of Diaz Trade Law, as well as Sharath Patil, the associate attorney with Diaz Trade Law. Good uh, afternoon, guys. I think it's afternoon here. Good afternoon, guys. Thank you for taking some time here. Nice talking to you guys again. So great to be here, Ben. Thanks for having us. We're excited to talk to you about exporting today. So much uh, to learn. Absolutely. Uh, welcome back, Jen. Obviously, this is episode two. So uh, there, if you haven't listened to the first episode by now, we highly recommend going backtracking and listen to our importing uh, episode. Uh, but we're welcoming Sharath for the first time. So good afternoon, Sharath. Hi, Ben. Nice to meet you. Yeah, looking forward to it. Looking forward to it. Yeah, so as you said, we, we did a little importing 101 on our prior episode. This is episode two of three. So this is our exporting 101 uh, edition. But before we get started, just in case anybody hasn't uh, watched or listened to the first episode, I uh, would love for you guys just to give a little background on yourselves as well as obviously uh, Diaz Trade Law as a, as a business. So I'll let you guys take the floor. Sure. Thanks so much for that. Diaz Trade Law, we have a combined six decades of experience when it comes to regulatory consulting and issues with federal government agencies. So we have a broad range of attorneys and we're strictly specialized in import-export transactions anything from compliance, but normally to urgent issues. And I call ourselves the 911 operators of trade. Typically, our clients call us in a panic and something is horrifically wrong with a federal government agency and there's trouble. And it's up to us to use our relationships and know-how to help fix whatever those issues are and to make it better. So today we're going to be talking about exporting. Last time we talked about importing and we talked about the good, the bad, and the ugly, and a word that I dub pre-compliance. And this is our happy, safe space. We always want our clients to come to us prior to a transaction, prior to importing, prior to exporting, to say, Diaz Trade Law, how do I do this compliantly so I don't get into trouble, so I don't need to call you in distress? And those are wonderful calls. But typically, it's about 15% of our business. It's actually, it's pretty low in comparison, because normally who wants to call an attorney, right? Unfortunately, we don't have the best reputation, but we're good guys, I swear. And typically it's it's mostly the 911 calls. So after we fix the 911 issue, then we hope to get people back in touch, in touch with the compliance side. That's always our goal. So Sharath is with me at Diaz Trade Law and he specializes in the export transactions, which is why he's here with us today to discuss exporting 101. Thanks, Jen. Yeah, we're thrilled to be here and to talk about exporting, uh, which is a favorite topic of mine. Uh, and so exporting in general, I think is really exciting because when a company matures, for example, here in the US, uh, and you've saturated your market domestically, it's exciting to think about uh, markets all over the world to diversify and to really expand. So it can be such a great opportunity for growth and just population wise, 95% uh, of markets are abroad. And so exporting can provide tremendous opportunities. And it's interesting because here in the US, we're not a particularly export driven economy, uh, especially compared to our European or Asian counterparts. In fact, only about 12% of our GDP uh, is derived from exports. Uh, but we see that exports have been steadily increasing in recent decades, and there's a lot of great services if a U.S. company wants to export, uh, including with the U.S. government. Um, the U.S. Commercial Service is a 
service offered by the Department of Commerce. They have offices here in the US, all across uh, ports and uh, major metro, metro areas, uh, as well as all over the world. And so they can vet uh, potential transactions for you, look at companies, do the groundwork. Uh, they can even introduce you to potential suppliers, uh, customers. So really they can be a great resource. Uh, similarly, the Export Import Bank is another terrific resource. They help finance uh, your export transactions. Uh, and so really there's just um, so many resources and people who want you to export because it's strategically important to the United States uh, and it's, it's a good thing for our economy. Uh, however, it's not just about uh, the good things. We're also here for like the bad things and the dangers of exporting because there are important implications. You could go to jail, you can be subject to heavy penalties. So Jen will tell you a little bit about how to do it compliantly. Absolutely. We have at DS Trade Law cheat sheets, because I love, I love resources and I love tools that help you remember a whole lot of information in one page. So that's what it's all about. It's really hard to get educated on a complex topic and to stay educated on that topic and to remember everything you've learned. So we have the top 10 tips when exporting, just like we talked about last time when we talked about importing, the top 10 tips when importing, we've done the same when it comes to exporting. We show this prominently on our website and it's a free download. And we're gonna talk about a lot of those things today and you can follow along if you go to diaztradelaw.com, towards the middle of the page, you can download the top 10 tips for free. And when it comes to doing it compliantly, we start with who regulates me? That's always one of the first things we have to think about is what do I do? Who regulates me? What federal agencies am I dealing with? Export control laws are really extremely specific and it's all about national security. So you could be dealing with an item that's innocuous. The item itself could be a pencil could be receipt paper could be the drum to your oil machine you know to where you store oil it could be something that's it's not something that goes boom or bang it's not a weapon but it could be something that's still regulated by our u.s government and something that you still need a license for and or something you can go to jail for exporting which is crazy on the export side and why it's really hard if you were ever in court and it's you versus the other side and the other side talks about national security what's your defense it's not going to be a good one especially when it could have been that you utilize pre-compliance right and we're going to talk about all the pre-compliance tools that you should be using prior to exportation so one of the first things we talk about is the who regulates me portion because there are so many us federal government agencies. We talked about this in the importing side as well, where you could have multiple agencies regulated import transaction, and that becomes overwhelming. No different on the export side. You, you really have to delve through to figure out which federal government agencies regulate you, and different agencies regulate different aspects of export compliance. So the four that we're gonna concentrate on today are the Bureau of Industry and Security, and we're gonna talk about the export administration regulations, which are enforced by BIS, the ITAR, International Traffic and Arms. So those are the things that go boom and bang. Those are the really exciting things. And those are regulated by the DDTC, 
the FCPA we'll talk about a little bit, the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. So obviously no bribery, please. This is for foreign bribes and such to get your export through or something along those lines, which is jointly regulated by the Department of Justice and the SEC and sanctions regulated by OFAC, the Office of Foreign Assets Control. So that's where we talk about Cuba and Venezuela is a very, very hot topic, especially in South Florida and such. So the first item that we want to make sure we understand is who are we talking about, right? And that's the pre-compliance aspect. So the first, when you're going through your export compliance plan and you're dealing with your training, your training should first say, great, what's the federal agency that regulates me? And do I need a license? And how do I go through my license thought process, right? What's my product? Is my product the drum? Is my product ammunition? Is my product a gun? Is my product receipt paper? Is it a cell phone? Is it water? What's the product? What's the product classification? So if it goes boom or bang, it's gonna be an ITAR. If it's anything else, it's likely on the ear. So we call the EAR the ear. So can use our, our fun acronyms. And if, it, if it's regulated on the ear, it may be that there's no specific classification within the ear for your particular product, and then it would be NLR, no license required. But of course there's a caveat, right? Because God forbid it would be so, so easy. So let's say your item is that water bottle, is that pencil, is that receipt paper, is something really simple and innocuous, but you're exporting it to Cuba, you're exporting it to Iran. We see medical devices, for example, going to Venezuela. That's a hot topic or medical devices, for example, going to Iran, that's that's juicy as well. So are there exceptions for your particular product? There's a lot of research that you have to do at the beginning. So then it's which of the federal government agencies regulate me? Am I in the ear land? Am I in ITAR land? Do I need a license? And it may not be because of my product itself. It may be because of who I'm dealing with. So the questions you ask, is who am I selling to? Who's my end user? And is that really the final end user? So if I'm selling an item to Sharath and Sharath is located in, let's say Spain, but he tells me that he's going to be shipping the item to Iran, it's my job to ask more questions. It's my job to know more about who that end user really is and what their end uses are really going to be in Iran. It becomes a little complicated and a little confusing then, but I hope that that's clear in regards to some of your first steps. It's knowing which agencies we're dealing with and which, what are your first steps whenever you're thinking about an export controls transaction period. And the harder aspect, Sharath, that I think we should go over is what is an export? Because it can be a conversation. It could be a fax. It could be just communicating with somebody that's foreign. And that, that becomes very, difficult as well to think of because normally we think of an export transaction as an actual product moving across country lines, you know, being exported from the United States to another country. But it may not be. Yeah, absolutely, Jim. So I think it's it's worthwhile to go a little bit deeper into each of these agencies to understand all of the implications of export controls and how they uh, are much broader than we might think. So for example, under the EAR, the Export Administration Regulations, uh, the, the scope of exports is incredibly broad. Uh, it includes uh, 
exports as you might traditionally think of, like things going somewhere outside of the US, but it can also include technology transfers. It can include email uploads, email attachments, uh, cloud services. And so it's a really broad definition of exports. Uh, the EAR is, is the big one because it's so broad. It includes chemicals and encrypted technologies and uh, certain additives, uh, certain technologies. It just, it really runs the gamut. It's, it's a really, really broad scope. And it includes all of the technologies that are associated with producing these products or providing these services. Uh, and the scope, everything that's included in the EAR is listed in a list called the Commerce Control List or the CCL. And we see in the CCL that uh, they're each assigned codes uh, called Export Control Classification Numbers, ECCNs. And a lot of commonly controlled technologies under the EAR have an ECCN associated with them. However, there's also a catch-all provision called EAR 99. And so we see that even if your product, your proposed export isn't specifically listed, it can still be controlled by the EAR. And meanwhile, so fun, ben? I mean, let's go back for one second there. You have your ECCN that's in the CCL that's also within the EAR that's regulated by BIS. Do you see why we love acronyms here, Ben? Is that fun or simple. what? Simple, simple. simple. <laughs> yep, it's an alphabet soup for sure. And so some more letters is ITAR. And of course, these are the things that do go boom and bust. These have defense implications. Uh, interestingly, it's uh, managed and enforced by uh, the U.S. State Department uh, through the Defense Directorate for Trade Controls. And so they have a list called the U.S. Munitions List or the USML. And on this list is all of these uh, weapons, defense-related technologies, services, blueprints, technologies. It's all specifically listed. Uh, and interestingly here, um, there is uh, options or arrangements in which you can enter into an agreement with the State Department. If you're providing certain services, if you're exporting certain technologies, there's a lot to it. There's the blueprints to design it. There's who's involved with uh, building and creating these technologies. There's how you actually provide the technology. And then there's aftercare, maintenance, services, repairs. Um, these all have export implications. Uh, and interestingly, and I always think this is a, a fun trivia fact, which is if you have a really large export that's uh, under ITAR, uh, you actually need to notify Congress. Uh, and, and so then Congress has the option to stop you within 30 days. And so there is this mechanism for very large arms sales, for example. Are there, are there certain products or maybe like chemicals in our example, like, like what's considered a large shipment is the, is there a, is there a tier that changes that or is it kind of a case by case depending on the product uh it is kind of case by case depending on the product uh the traditional definition is over 25 million dollars uh and so that we're talking about a very small category and it usually happens when you're selling arms to another government for example and so we don't Got have it. too many cases of that uh that we see but who would think that you have to communicate with congress prior right? to engaging in an export transaction, then I guarantee you, Ben, if you were to post a poll on how many people in the world know that specific transactions have to be approved by the US Congress if they're above a certain dollar amount for a specific item, who would know that? I mean, I sure didn't. Uh, if that was a true or false question, I probably would have said false, so. 
and you are the majority of the population, no different. So the bottom line here is it's extremely technical and not necessarily common sense because a common sense individual would not necessarily think that you have to work so hard or go through so much in order to determine whether a particular product does or doesn't need a license dependent upon who it's going to. And the fun part nowadays, especially because God knows we are all buying online more and more and more, are these online transactions and the development of e-commerce in conjunction with your export compliance plans in space and understanding who regulates you and who's actually purchasing from you online. That gives, I mean, we can come up with so many more questions and fact patterns as well, but what we will talk about a little bit is we'll talk about OFAC and FCPA, we'll talk about some tools, and then we're gonna tell you some horror stories and some don't let this be used, and some examples of people that get it wrong and what we can learn from them. And one of the things, just to go back to real quick, you mentioned too, was talking about you know who, who may be the actual end user or, or you know just because you sell it to one place doesn't mean that's where it's ending up. I'm sure that's a common thing with us in the chemical industry is especially businesses like TCC and I'm sure many people that are listening to this, whether they're in a similar industry as us or you know maybe doing something similar, products that we sell are so high up on the supply chain they could be used in a variety of different applications, whether it's paints and coatings or adhesives or whatever the case might be. So in terms of a company, say like TCC or some chemical company that's selling these raw material, these commodity type products, how much due diligence needs to be done um, on average, you know, for, for a similar business? Uh, is it just understanding where it's going, what it's being produced or where that end product might, might be sold? Or how, how far would you recommend, you know, really looking into it and doing your due diligence ahead of time? Sure. I think Sharaf and I can both weigh in on this. Most companies we recommend have what's called an end user form. Basically, when you're selling anything to anyone, you normally have at a minimum a commercial invoice, right? Well, before that, you should have a PO of some sort. So what vetting do you do of your customer in any way, shape, or form? So in the chemical industry, for example, Ben, fill me in. When a customer of yours orders, do they order, do they typically have a phone call, have an email, fill out a purchase order online? Is it an online transaction? How much info do you normally know about your customer in a typical basis? Uh, I mean, company, where it's shipping to, where the company is based out of, uh, various people that are involved, whether it's the direct purchasing manager or the supply chain manager, um, and maybe their customs broker or customs info, depending on who's arranging the freight in the import or export. You know, and this, this is typically done by phone, by email? All the above. All the above. I think we try to keep you know a, a hard copy, but you know there can be some info that goes back and forth on the phone too, I'm sure. Sure, you know lawyers always want written records, so we're always gonna tell you to make sure you jot down notes from every phone call on who you spoke with and when. So we want dates, we want people, we want company names on those notes, please, please, please don't forget that. And then when you're communicating with your customers, the real question is what are you doing to vet that particular customer? Do you know who owns that particular entity? Sometimes it may not be the actual person you're communicating with, but it may be the owner of the entity itself that you're dealing with. So give me a typical value for a chemical exportation. What are we talking about in terms of value? Uh, I mean, if something's a dollar a pound, we're talking maybe $50,000 to make nice, easy math. Okay. So we're not talking about a crazy high number in terms of value, but at the end of the day, you probably have customers that then sell products to other customers, right? They may or may not be the actual end user. So on a typical basis, are you asking your customer whether or not they are utilizing your particular chemical 
or whether they have an intent to ship that chemical to someone else. Is that a typical question that's asked? That's a good question. I'm not sure. Okay, so that, that needs to be asked. So what we typically recommend is an end user cheat sheet. Like everything else, everything boils down to a cheat sheet then. So on that cheat sheet, it should be who the customer is, if is the customer the end user, and if they're not, who is, because then you can do vetting. And when I say vetting, there is a really cool tool that's on export.gov, another free tool, and there are some amazing software services that update this as well. So what I would ask is your freight forwarder who's helping with the export, they should be the ones that ensure that your EEI is filed, your electronic export information. So if your transaction is over $2,500, you always have to file your EEI in the AES, right? More acronyms, your electronic export information in the automated export system. So that's the online paperless kind of submission system. And that freight forwarder may also help you with the consolidated screening list screening. Because what happens is that Freight Forwarder typically has really cool software that plugs into the consolidated screening list. So they would check the entity that it's going to and the location it's going to and the, and the HTS, which may or may not give them an indication on whether or not a license or a specific federal government agency is triggered. Now, the Freight Forwarder is only responsible for so much because let's say you, Ben, are the seller in the United States. You're what we call the U.S. principal party in interest. You stand the most to gain by this transaction, right? You're selling the $50,000 worth of chemicals to me in pick a country, right? So you are really responsible for the compliance aspect in the United States, right? Not your freight forwarder, not me as the buyer, but you, Ben. So it's up to you to check this consolidated screening list on exports.gov and for you to understand and communicate with me prior to me purchasing, prior, prior to me giving you money and prior to you confirming that you're going to sell to me, whether or not I'm really utilizing the chemicals or whether I'm really gonna sell them to Sharath who's in Iran. And then you better check Sharath and his name personally, as well as the company name. And then who owns Sharath's company? Is it Sharath or is it somebody else? And then we have to vet them. It becomes a lot and cumbersome sometimes when you think about all the things that you really should be checking, but there are two different aspects to this. One is, do you need a license to export the chemical to me? And two is, can I actually pay you? Because what happens, and some of our clients freak out, oh my God, the government just blocked my bank account. They took a million bucks from me. What do I do? Well, that sucks, right? You don't want the government to freeze your assets or you don't want a bank to freeze your assets within your bank account. And there's a possibility for that to happen if you didn't proactively in advance screen that you can receive money from me. And that's separate and apart from the license aspect. So OFAC is who we think of as the money guy and BIS is who we think about as the license guy. So BIS, do I need a license to export whatever the item is? And OFAC, can I get paid by this particular person? And is that okay? Especially if they're in a sanctioned country. So it winds up getting a little fuzzy. So one of my pro tips when it comes to the consolidated screening list is there's a section within it where you can check a name, which is great. And you can also do what's called a fuzzy name. Super fun. Why they call it fuzzy, I don't know. Because it's a little fuzzy. You're not sure if it's the right name, not the right name. 
So when you turn on fuzzy, if anything sounds like or is spelled anything like my particular name, it'll pop up. Typically, what I also do is I look by country. So you can do a search by country, by name, by company, different ways in which you can search. But my biggest tip is when you take the time to search, you must do a PDF of that search because it'll show the date that you searched. So now if you, Ben, tell me, oh, I searched the, com the consolidated screening list, the CSL, before I sold to Jen. Great. Where's your proof? Oh, but I, I'm telling you, I searched it. I'm a good guy. Of course I searched it. It doesn't weigh as much unless you can show me, well, show me your records for this transaction and show me proof that you searched it. So I really like to see that PDF in your file for this particular transaction. Because what happens if I'm not on the CSL when I place the order, I'm not on the CSL when you shipped me the order, but I am on the CSL when I pay you, right? And sometimes the timing of these transactions could really be tough. Yeah, it makes it all makes sense. There's a certainly a lot to uh, think about and, and understand, and makes you appreciate you know everything that goes on in the back end. When you know it's easy, it sounds easy to go get the new customer. It sounds much more cumbersome and, and you know uh, equally important, but a little more time intensive to you know do the vetting and everything like that. So you can see why maybe companies maybe would lean against imp uh, exporting or not look at it as a primary business avenue because there is a lot that goes into it. Not that it's not a very potentially lucrative opportunity. It's just there's a, certainly a lot more that goes into it than just staying in the States. Two aspects to that. One, your sales guys hate you, unfortunately, but it's normal because the sales guys just want to make the sales and you can't blame them. But your compliance guys should always overrule the sales guys. And two is what's your internal process and is management on board? Because you're right, exporting is tough. And if you get this wrong, Jail is a potential, which is horrific. But if if you, the sales guy, are so anxious to make the sale and you forget or don't care or intentionally don't care about compliance side, you personally could be liable in addition to the company having liability, which is so tough. And it's an important aspect to think of, which is why this is one aspect of the law where you just can't learn about it and think about it. You have to have a written practice on how you comply with it. Because if, if VIS, for example, the Bureau of Industry and Security was to come to your facility and say, show me your export compliance plan and how I know that I can trust you when you're exporting so that you do the end user, the end uses, the consolidated screening list searches, you vet your particular customers, you know when a license is or isn't required and which agencies regulate your particular products, and if you can't show them an actual written process that shows and documents the steps, the sales guys can't run the show. The sales guys have to be able to put in the order for the compliance guys to say, yes, it's okay, or no, it's not okay. And if you're doing this online, same thing. People can request that you ship them chemicals, but there should be a yes, no, before you just say, sure, and take their money right away. It should be a, we'll review the order first and advise whether or not we have questions, don't have questions, or can accept. It's it's a, a, a very tricky slope sometimes. And some people have specific countries blocked in their computer systems. And they say, if you're from X, X, or X country, sorry, I just don't sell to those particular regions, period. And that may be the right solution for some companies. 
Yeah, no, it makes sense. Absolutely. So I, I think that's a great overview on what you should be doing and the process and how that all works. I, I know from the last episode, and if you didn't stream the last episode, you know, certainly recommend maybe pausing and going to check that one out. But I know in the last episode, we had some good examples in terms of what not to do, maybe not so good for the, the types of companies you're about to mention, but good case studies on maybe what not to do and, and examples of things you guys have seen in the past specific to exporting. So, you know, we'd love to hear some of those stories and maybe something to use as a case study or, or what not to use. Maybe there's companies out there in a similar situation or similar type of uh, business arrangement that, you know, would, would definitely benefit from it. So I'm looking forward to seeing what, uh, what not to do when exporting from, uh, from your point of view. Absolutely. If you violate the EAR, the EAR, criminal, you can have up to 20 years of prison time or up to 1 million in fines per violation. And administratively, 300K per violation. You could also lose your export privileges. ITAR, criminal of 1 million per violation and 10 years in prison. Civil, 500K per violation. Loss of export privileges also. And OFAC completely differs by program. So Venezuela, Cuba, Syria, Iran, for example, all different. And the Trading with the Enemy Act, 90,000 plus per violation. So now you see these as the per violation. And when we get into the examples, think about these numbers because they could be way higher. My favorite publication is BIS has a don't let this happen to you. So this is like the Reader's Digest People magazine of the export compliance world. So if you ever want to know the horror stories of what happened, we're going to give you a little, a little dive, but you can do a major deep dive and read it. It's a phenomenal reading. You get to see the worst of the worst in terms of penalties for the last few years and what's happened. And this is an amazing publication that BIS sends out typically annually. And it's all these amazing case studies. So Sharath is gonna go through some of them with you. Yeah, absolutely. I think these case studies are a great way to learn. They show what are the different things, the different activities, the mistakes that happened that you should avoid at all costs. And so uh, one example uh, pertains to both the EAR and the ITAR. Um, the company is called Clear Systems. And uh, FLIR is a U.S. producer of thermo thermal imaging uh, equipment, so think like night vision goggles. And uh, of course, they uh, supply U.S. military, foreign militaries. And uh, FLIR filed something called a commodity jurisdiction request, uh, or a CJ request, as we like to say. And a CJ request is a really interesting tool. It tells you whether the EAR or the ITAR applies to your uh, proposed export. So if you're not sure, uh, there is a mechanism in which you can ask the government and they'll let you know. Uh, and so FLIR made this request. Uh, and interestingly, BIS found that they made misrepresentations and concealed certain facts, like who they're exporting to, what the purpose of the export is. And uh, specifically, FLIR claimed that the product at issue which was uh, meant only for insertion into smartphones, while internally they were contemplating like drone applications, military applications. So they lied to the government in order to quell the government's concerns that the technology would be diverted. And, um, and they paid for it. They had a uh, fine of $307,000 just for one single filing uh, misrepresentation. And so I thought that was just a really powerful example because CJ requests we think of as just getting guidance from the government. 
you know, as, as a pretty uninvolved uh, process. And yet here it was a big deal. So it's just really important to be forthcoming with the government, even when you're going to the government to ask for help. And um, then I can go on and share some other examples pertaining to these other areas of law. So one that involved EAR specifically was uh, SAP, which is a well-known software company. Uh, they were recently fined a whopping fine of $8 million uh, for violating the EAR as well as OFAC sanctions. Uh, and what they did was they were accused of exporting to Iran in a, in a manner that was unauthorized by law. Um, specifically with a lot of their software, uh, they didn't uh, update the geolocation features properly. And so they failed to identify and block users in Iran. And by doing so, they violated US sanctions laws, uh, the EAR. And what's interesting is they did it, it compounded because it wasn't just one, the whole thing wasn't just one violation. It was for every instance that it happened. And so the fine just really added up. Uh, and interestingly, this was an $8 million fine after they discovered the issue and then voluntarily disclosed it to the government. So there's a mechanism we're going to talk about in a little bit called a voluntary self-disclosure. It's a powerful tool to mitigate your penalties, lessen your criminal liability. Basically, the idea is you discover you made a mistake. And so you fess up to the government yourself. And the government likes that. It's a win-win situation. Uh, and here, SAP discovered it, and they said, let's share it with our with the government, and they did. Uh, they were still fined $8 million, but it could have been way higher had they not done so. Yeah, it's amazing to think about, you know, obviously, I think being in the chemical industry, we're certainly biased to thinking of exporting as physical product, whether it's a bulk tanker or package and drums or totes or bags. Um, but thinking about exports in a fashion of like a piece of software, something that can just be deployed via the internet immediately, it's maybe something that I, at least I didn't think of. I'm sure maybe, I'm, I'm sure you guys hear a lot of people saying that, you know, they don't consider software or these non-tangible things as an export, but it certainly makes sense that it falls on, you know, all the same regulations and, and is subject to, like you just mentioned, some of these pretty high, uh, high penalties if you don't follow the law, uh, even though it may not seem on paper that it, that it, it, it applies. Now think of conversations. Yeah, and it's very expensive. Exactly. And, and we're finding this IT issue to be a repeat occurrence and repeat violations across sectors. And so, uh, for example, with file sharing cloud servers, uh, this is a problem we see all the time. Honeywell, very well-known company, they were fined under ITAR because they accidentally exported in the sense that they transferred drawings of certain components of aircraft uh, to multiple countries and people who shouldn't have seen those blueprints, uh, including a lot of users in China. And so this was done because the file sharing wasn't secured. It was not controlled who can access these files. And the State Department found that sharing this information posed a threat to national security. And so um, they were fined, uh, and Honeywell also participated in a VSD process. 
Amazing. Yeah, one of the things you had mentioned, I know, with that most recent case, too, was these these voluntary or proactive uh, disclosures on violations or what a company might might consider a violation. Um, I guess what is the how does that process work and what is the recommendation from your side on, you know, if a company thinks they may have had a had a violation, whether voluntary, whether, uh, you know, on purpose or accidentally, whatever the case might be, you know, what, what is that process to get that ball, ball rolling and say, you know, hey, we might have made this mistake. And how does that what does that process look like? You'll be happy to know we also have cheat sheets for you on this. So we have three articles that Sharath and I have written about the ins and outs of filing voluntary disclosures with census, with BIS, with OFAC. And those are really, they're detailed, but they're also short and sweet in terms of what you should be thinking about prior to filing a voluntary disclosure. So Ben, we'll make sure that you have all of those and can share those with the listeners as well so that everybody knows they can have a really great guide to think of and read a little bit more of on what the process is when you're filing, because it's really specific. So let's imagine worst case scenario, Ben, you did something wrong and you as an individual, so we'll play out a specific case that's a recent case as well. So you as an individual, and you had some co-conspirators, of course, you diverted millions of dollars worth of chemicals to Iran's oil and petrochemical industry, right? And you know you did it and you, you had a specific scheme and this is you doing it on purpose. This is like really, really bad. So this is the worst, worst, worst case scenario. So you have a company in the US that's basically just a shell company and you and your co-conspirators are using a specific money exchange system to avoid sanctions. And what are you doing? You are sending products to the UAE and what are they doing? Diverting it to Iran and what are you doing? You know about all of this and you're helping to facilitate it. So as illegal as it comes, right? Because we know the end user and the end uses are not good. And this is your time before the government is investigating you to fess up. So maybe you have some guilty feelings and you say, all right, it's time. Maybe I'm going to Maybe I'll fess up. Well, if you fess up, that doesn't mean you get away scot-free all the time because you were pretty bad, right? And I mean, if you didn't fess up, which is a specific case where one specific guy, and this is individuals, he didn't fess up, right? So we got 20 months in prison. That sucks, right? I mean, to me, your freedom is worth a lot, right? I mean, I, I think it should be. And not to say he didn't get fines as well. So, but 20 months in prison, what's the value of that, right? So now let's say you did fess up beforehand, before the government was aware of your acts, and before anyone was investigating you, you may have gotten away with no jail time and just penalties. That's a big deal. So it depends on the specific violation. So what I always say is before you submit a disclosure, you must, must, must. This is not like potential, maybe you must have counsel involved. I don't care who it is, but it better be somebody who's knowledgeable about the federal government agencies and about how to submit a proper disclosure. There are specific timelines. So let's say, Ben, you submit a disclosure, but you don't provide all the juicy details that are a necessity for a disclosure, right? And then the government says, thanks so much for giving me this intel, but I'm not going to treat it as a disclosure because you didn't do it right. You didn't submit all the juicy intel that you had to submit within the time frame that you had to submit it by. So thanks for the juicy info. You don't get the benefit of the disclosure because you didn't do it right. You didn't have the right people on your team to disclose. How bad does that stink, right? 
That's to me, that's one of the worst things. That's a nightmare. Why would you ever want to disclose and to tell on yourself if you're not going to reap the benefits of doing so? So bottom line, if you believe you've committed a violation, whether it's horrific, as I just told you, as the example where Ben is purposefully diverting, right? Or if it's innocent, right? What we see a lot of are, I just purchased X and X company. And during due diligence, I realized they did something wrong. Great. Well, what are you going to do differently for the future? That's the first question that's asked, right? What does your export compliance look like right now? Where's the deficiency in your current export compliance plan? And how do you fix it? Because during due diligence with that particular company before closing was a great time for you to think about it, for you to check into it and to make that company disclose before you purchase them, right? If you're waiting till after you purchase them and it's your problem now, because now Ben, you own Sherath's company, but when you were doing due diligence on Sherath's company, you didn't bring in an export compliance expert. So they didn't ask the right questions or look through the right documentation. So they didn't realize that you made a big, big, big mistake, right? So now Ben, Sherath's company is your problem. So Sherath gets to throw the buck. It's all your problem now. So now you disclose to me BIS. And I say, all right, Ben, so let's talk about your processes. What's going on here? And then Ben, you're a multi-bazillion dollar company and you acquire another company and another company. And the same thing happens over and over again where your due diligence during the acquisition process was not sufficient to realize that there were violations. But after you acquire the company, then you think you can just keep reporting to BIS over and over again. Let me tell you, they are pissed when that happens. And they get very, very upset because the thought process behind a disclosure is, I'll think about giving you a free pass, but guess what? This involves national security. It's not a joke. It's not a laughing matter. So what processes do you have in place so that I can trust you again? Because once you break my trust, good luck getting that back, right? So do I have to cut you off from exporting? Do I have to force you to get an export compliance professional on your payroll? Do I have to force you to show me your export compliance plan and your corrective actions? What do I have to force you to do so that I can trust you again? Because I'm not happy with your processes, right? And that's one of the worst things that can happen, right? Well, to me, the worst thing, let's be real, is jail time. That's the absolute worst. But it's also really bad for you to think about using the voluntary disclosure as a routine matter of course practice. The government's not happy with that. Very happy to give you a free pass if you're innocent, made a mistake, somebody made a clerical error, but you also shouldn't use it as if it's nothing. It's a big deal and you use it when you really want that free pass and you're a good company. So what we're seeing a lot of right now are freight forwarders, for example, especially during COVID, and this could happen to any exporter, where you're making mistakes in your EEI filings because you're working remotely due to COVID, right? This is happening to everyone right now. So if this is happening to you and you're listening, don't ever think you're alone. It's happening to a lot of us. So now what happens when you make a mistake with your EEI filing? This isn't a license issue, right? This isn't an end user and end use issue, but it's basically information that should be sent to both census and customs so that we have accurate records of what's being exported, where and in what quantity and in what value. And if you don't do that correctly, your goods could be seized, right? And you could be issued a penalty as the exporter. So 
when you want to consider when to file a disclosure or when not, it's what are the potential penalties on the line? How much of a potential issue am I seeing my company face? And can I deal with that? Or do I want to try to save myself from any potential penalties by telling on myself? Is the government on to me or are they not on to me? That's number one, because if the government's on to you, too late, you missed your opportunity. If the government's not on to you and you have a big potential penalty headed your way, then it's great to hedge your bets and file that disclosure, as long as you're willing during that time that you file filing your disclosure to, to beef up your export compliance plan and tell the government during your disclosure, look, I've been in business for this long. I've never, I've never said I'm sorry to you before. I'm saying I'm sorry to you now. Here's my entire story. And you spill your guts because they want all the juicy, gory details. They want the who, what, when, where, why, how. And I want names. I want dates. I want times. I want people. I want all the juicy details because if I'm going to potentially forgive you, you better fess up and fess up good. So this is you're going to confession, right? So the government's your priest here and you are absolutely going to confession. And if you don't tell all the juicy details, you don't get the forgiveness, right? But if you do, great. And it, it happens quite a bit where we file these disclosures after having serious conversations with our clients. Is this the time you want to use your free pass? Is this it? Is this the worst mistake you've ever made? And if so, what do you also really want to consider? And this is the value of getting a lawyer involved. Did you do this before? Because if you did, you want to cover all the previous mistakes as well. Because like we talked about on the import side, you have a statute of limitations, right? So you want to cover all that past stuff as well. And you want to put that into this disclosure as well. So something we highly recommend is getting your ACE data. So we talked about this on the import side, your automated commercial environment data. You can get it for your export transactions as well. So if you import and export, you can sign up for reports for both. We have amazing webinars on the tools that you should use and what you should actually have in each of those reports. Because then if you made a mistake, Ben, on an export transaction and you said, I think I made this previously, we can get a report of all your export transactions, right? And then great, let's identify which ones you screwed up before. Let's circle all of them and let's fess up to all of them because we're gonna make this disclosure count. So it's a very precise kind of thing. It's not something you take for granted. It's not something you take lightly. You have to take it seriously. Yeah, absolutely. You know, all absolutely makes sense. I think one thing before we go into <clears throat> some resources and things to end up, um, what, what do you often recommend when talking to clients on when the best time to get a company like DS Trade Law or whoever your local you know law company might be or, or preferred uh, attorney? Is it uh, I have a feeling the answer will be a mix of all, but is it really, you know, before you start exporting? Is it during the export process? Is it after when you think you might have made a mistake? Are clients talking to you every single time they export anything? Or is it like a check-in? Or what, what, is the, what is the normal process like? Or, or what's the ideal process like, I suppose, the question should be? Love the question. So to me, it, you have to think about it in a couple of different ways. So let's pretend, Ben, it's your company. And you just started this company. And you're green. You've never exported before. You don't know what BIS is. You don't know what OFAC is. You're not the right person to handle export compliance. Not going to happen. And I'm not happy with you handling export compliance. So if you talk to me after you do and you have violations, I would have yelled at you for not having help sooner, right? But if, Ben, you tell me I'm starting a new company, but I've got a team of 10 people 
And one person is a badass with compliance. They know all the agencies. They know when a license is or isn't needed. They're on my team. And they developed a mini handbook for us on exactly what we're supposed to do when and how we vet transactions. And they put systems in place that go to our sales team. So this is how we're starting. Great. I would love to review that and confirm that you're all good and send you on your happy, merry way. But if you come to me in the first instance saying, I'm a small entity with an amazing idea. This chemical is needed in this country. It's phenomenal. What, a, what an amazing opportunity I have. Love it. I'm very happy for you. But what are you doing compliance-wise? Oh, I mean, it's not that big of a deal, right? I have a forwarder. They'll deal with it. No, they won't. They're not your external compliance department. So I, I have a, a bad instance of having to yell at people that think that the transportation service providers are actually external compliance providers. That's not what they get paid for. If you're trusting your freight forwarder to vet your transactions for you, vet your suppliers for you, vet your customers for you, that's not their job. So if you have a team in place that you trust and that has the requisite knowledge and know-how on your team, I love it. Then maybe you want to do a compliance checkup once a year. That's pretty much the most I would ask you to do. But if you have nothing, then I highly, highly, highly recommend prior to exporting, you get the right team in place. And if it's not going to be internally, that's okay. It's not a necessity that you pay an employee a full-time salary and benefits to have this type of program in place. But it is a necessity that you have it. If it's external assistance that you're receiving, there's nothing wrong with that. But if you do none of this at the beginning, you are sure to call me in a 911 situation. And then I can tell you it's going to be triple as expensive. So I'm happy, but you're not going to be happy. Yeah, makes sense. I think that's good good feedback for people and a, a good, you know, obviously a case-by-case basis on what level of involvement needs to be had. But uh, no, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, wrapping things up, I know we talked about a lot of different resources and agencies that are out there. Um, I know we had a great list on the import side of, um, you know, resources to use, things to read, newsletters to get on. Um, obviously, on the import episode, if you scroll down to the show notes, all of those resources are there. I'm sure we can do the same thing uh, with this episode. We'll have a full list down in the show notes. But what are some of the best resources out there, whether you're a, uh, I think you called it a compliance badass, which is should be someone's official title. That's a great, great business card title. Um, or if you know nothing about exporting, what are what are some of the best resources to use? Perfect. So one, you have to pick a law firm that you know, love and trust. Hopefully that's us at dstradelaws.com. We have a whole export section and we have a whole lot of blogs just on exporting and trainings on exporting. If you're brand spanking new, highly recommend Export 101, a simple class that gives you an overview and background. I also talked about our top 10 tips when exporting in a in a week or so, we're going to be doing our Export 201 class. So Sharath and I will be talking about what needs to be in your Export Compliance Handbook and what your processes should and shouldn't include. And that'll discuss as well when to file your disclosure, who you need on your team and who you need externally if you don't have them on your team. All the things that we talked about, how you put that in writing to develop an actual process and getting senior management involved. So. I would say in terms of Diaz trade law resources to summarize, we have a blog, we have a monthly newsletter, we have webinars, and we have our top 10 tips cheat sheet. So we'll send you all those links to have in your show notes. And then we have the BIS don't let this happen to you guide. You have to look at this. This is external to us, but it's phenomenal. It's a great way 
unfortunately, to scare the business owners. So if you're the compliance professional and you want to get senior management on board to understand the value of your position, which is keeping everybody out of jail and penalty free, I think you have a lot of value. So to me, I always say to the compliance professionals every year, in your company that no one went to jail and the company did not receive a penalty, you deserve a raise, you did your job. So at the end of the year, you tell your boss, nobody went to jail this year and you didn't get a penalty. That means I rock. That means I am a compliance badass and I need a raise and I need a bonus because I did my job phenomenally. And hopefully you have all the record keeping slash and you have your export compliance plan in place. Then. When it comes to export.gov, so many great tools as well. They have great trainings that I highly recommend as well. And they talk about the elements of an export compliance program, all the things that should be in it that we're going to go into depth with that we'll share with you. And also the consolidated screening list, which is on our top 10 tips when exporting, which you'll also receive. So to me, those are some of the basics that I would highly, highly recommend, along with our three Bloomberg articles, which is when you have a disclosure, what you're supposed to do, you know, when it's when you decide it's my time to get my freebie, it's my time to go to the government agencies and make my confession, right? So how do I do it appropriately? Those three guides I think are phenomenal. So that, that covers the pre-compliance side and the, oh no, I made a mistake, how do I fess up appropriately? Awesome. Yeah, great list of resources, a lot of stuff out there. Uh, obviously, I think you guys do a fantastic job with your own website and blogs and webinars, and that's all incredibly important, as well as obviously the resources that are provided from the government itself. So it sounds like there's a lot out there and really no excuse not to make sure you're checking the boxes off. You said it, Ben, no excuse. <laughs> Well, thank you both. I really appreciate you guys being on. Um, obviously, this is the second of our three-part mini-series. We have Importing 101, uh, the episode prior, and then we'll have our next episode here coming up hopefully in a couple weeks. We'll get them recorded and released here uh, in a very short time. Um, so again, thank you both for being on. Really appreciate it. Looking forward to getting these out there, uh, hopefully making uh, all of our customers, suppliers, business partners, everyone that streams the podcast, you know, even a little bit more aware of importing, exporting, and, and what goes into trade law. Um, so again, really appreciate both your time. It's, it's been a lot of fun talking to you both and uh, looking forward to wrapping up our mini series here with the third episode soon. Thanks so much, Ben. We had a great time on here and I hope everybody learned something new. Absolutely. Thank you both very much again. Uh, as always, thank you for listening. Appreciate uh, your following along with The View. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, obviously all the links will be down in the show notes as discussed. Uh, I'm sure there'll be posts on both the DS Trade Law website as well as the TCC website with all the episodes and info as well. Um, so once again, thank you both and uh, we'll see you next time. Take care. Bye-bye. Yeah,